Welcome to a special bonus episode of the M&A podcast series. We've taken a bit of a break after last season and we're now preparing for season number two. But in the meantime, I thought it would be fun to collate some highlights from the 10 episodes from the first season as a short guide to M&A. When introducing a new member or future deal lead, I would often make them support a deal that was already signed but not yet completed, so that they can experience a deal by finding out what's been done to get to this point in the deal. Compared to this situation with a new deal lead, I will take you as listener even further back and start looking at how the previous deal performed so that your next deal can learn from it. Looking back at your deal after it's completed can also tell you that you have to take some corrective action to manage your newly acquired business. Let's first hear from Donald Murphy, CEO of DCC, a FTSE 100 company that's grown through a series of over 400 acquisitions. What we do as an organization is two years after every acquisition, we do a full deep dive on it with the management team take out the investment proposal, look at the performance versus the investment proposal. There'll always be changes. There's always changes. But even if it's performing well and there's areas where we haven't succeeded in our value creation proposition, then we revisit and we look at that and say, well, should we be doing more or should we be happy uh, with where it is? Every three years for acquisitions that we bring to the PLC board, we bring it back to the PLC board, warts and all, very open. And we say, this is how it's performed. Here's where we've succeeded. Here's where we need to improve. And it's all about the learning, you know, and bringing that learning back to the next deal. What Donald describes here is, in my mind, the key reason why McKinsey, the consultancy firm, in their study following businesses over an extensive period, have found that those businesses that make frequent acquisitions, which they call programmatic M&A activities, outperform businesses that make occasional or no deals. Here's Jeff Rudnicki from McKinsey explaining that. So this research started actually in 1999. We first published about when I first came to McKinsey in 2010, 2011. And then every two years or so, we update it. We're actually due for another update in the next month or two. But effectively, there was this notion, and I know we'll talk about it, that 70% of deals destroy value. And we wanted to understand more because our fundamental belief was that can't be true, given how much capital is deployed. So what we did is we looked at the largest 2,000 companies in the world. So these are the top 2,000 companies in market cap over a long-term time period. So the research that I'll talk about today is during the period, the decade of the 2010s. So what you do is you take the 2,000 largest companies in 2010, and then you look at the companies that remain, that are still publicly traded, and still among the top 2,000 at the end of 2019, and you look at their M&A behaviors. And what we've found, which is what we have found every single time that we have done this research, so every single two-year period, is that programmatic companies, and these are companies who are defined as doing more than two smaller mid-sized deals per year, and they acquire a meaningful amount of market cap over the 10-year period, about 20% of their market cap is acquired. Those companies, we call them programmatic, not only perform the highest, their total return to shareholders is beyond those of their peer set, and we do compare peers to peers. We do look across industries, but we're not saying you're winning because you're in a better industry. You're actually beating your peers. So programmatic companies not only perform better, 
but their variance, their total return to shareholder variance is lower. So we have found that every single time. Now the research does change, as you can imagine, year over year. This year, what we found uh, in our most recent is organic companies. So those that are effectively not doing deals are now performing the worst with the highest variation. Selective companies, so those that are like programmatic acquiring smaller mid-sized companies, but just are not acquiring at the same rate. So they're acquiring fewer than two deals per year. They destroyed a little bit of value. And then large deals, which are companies that did at least one acquisition where they acquired 30% or more of their own market cap in a transaction. These are the mega deals that we often read about on the front page. Those deals are a coin flip. So half of the companies in our research that did large deals outperformed their peers and half of the companies that did large deals underperformed their peers. Not surprisingly, their variation is quite high. Jeff says that those who do large deals may create or may destroy value. It's a coin flip. If you ask me, I would argue that if you could look into the deal-making behaviors of these companies, that it's the ones who have managed to do something similar as Donnell in DCC, i.e. to learn from their previous deals, that are going to be the ones that are on the positive side of the coin flip. And that brings me to one of the key reasons to make this podcast, the reputation of our M&A industry to excel in value destruction. It came up in our very first episode with Sven Royal. Let me quote you from an article in The Economist of August last year, entitled Blasted Are the Dealmakers, which noted that 2021 hit a record $5.9 trillion of deals announced. It also stated that if history is anything to go by, many of these deals will destroy value. The article goes on to argue that there is a substantial body of research that deals destroy value in more than 50% of cases. And that if you take into account the very good market conditions of 2021, including top of the market valuations, the chances are we're going to see a number of write downs and bankruptcies as a consequence. The article also lists a string of deals that destroyed value and one lucky SKP, Unilever, which had made a $66 billion bid for GSK's consumer healthcare division, now called Halion. The deal wasn't supported by shareholders, and today, if they wanted to, Unilever could buy Halion for a lot less given the current stock market value of £29 billion in mid-December. And by the way, I just checked and Halion is still valued around that same level as a year before. I think one of the problems with M&A is that it looks too easy. After all, how difficult can it be to do a deal? Let me quote my predecessor in my Shell M&A role, George Santos Silva, who used to tell any aspiring dealmaker in Shell that doing a deal is indeed extremely simple. All you have to do is to sign the contract. Here, at the bottom line, there you go, and you are done. In reality, of course, things are not like that, and I hope this episode of the podcast can help you understand that. So we go back to looking at the deals back to front, and let's now look at the integration part. You've just completed how you're going to fit it into your company. Here's Donald Murphy again. Yeah, again, I think this is so, so important for businesses. And, you know, people often say and quote it a number of times in your previous podcasts, you know, percentages of deals that haven't worked, that haven't really created value. And when I think about that, I don't think it's about buying the wrong business. I think it's about the integration process. 
And that starts pre-acquisition. And for us, the most important part of our due diligence is always making sure that we have a management team that can grow and develop the business unless we're fully integrating it into an existing operation and that that management team shared the same values that we have as an organisation. So if you bring in a team of people that have a very different culture, a very different set of values, you know, that's going to be a problem. And you've got to get that right up front. We will not buy a business if we don't believe we have the right leadership within that business. You know, you've got to be upfront with the business because we're a PLC and fortunately or unfortunately with a PLC, there's lots of governance, there's lots of reporting requirements, there's lots of regulation that probably don't impact on some of the smaller businesses that we acquire. So, you know, we've got to be upfront and tell them that's part of being a PLC. I think if you don't do that, it becomes a negative surprise afterwards, which is an issue for the business. And then you've got to very quickly integrate the business into your operating models. Now, there's two types of acquisition. There's a platform business in a new geography or moving into a new area where you're not integrating it into another business. So that's not a bolt on. In which case, I think we've been poor enough sometimes at really telling the businesses and helping the businesses to adapt to the PLC environment because you say, well, I'm not integrating it, so I don't need to do much. But there's an awful lot of change on the team in coming into an environment or indeed coming into the shell environment or any other large corporate. On the other hand, you know, where you're fully integrating a business, while it's much more challenging because there's lots of change required and lots of change management to do, it's actually easier in ways to embrace the change into the business because it's just part of a very structured managed program. And that's something we've spent an awful lot of time on over the years because we've bought lots of businesses. We learn from the mistakes. We build that into our program. So the next time we don't do that and the next time and the next time. So I think people and then fast integration and honesty up front in terms of the implications on the business. Here you see how you have to think about integration early on in the deal. The step before that is your deal completion. Again, that's something to consider early on, as we hear from Anthony Lobo from KPMG. How are these risks agreed to be shared between buyer and seller in various closing mechanisms, Anthony? I think you can tell us lots about that. Yeah, so this is the area that I think I always really loved, and I think you and I had many conversations around the optionality here. So there's two basic mechanisms. One is effectively where you have a locked box, so the buyer effectively takes the economic value of the business from signing through to completion. And when you have long periods between signing and completion, that's generally what financial buyers will look towards. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The other mechanism, which was quite often the traditional mechanism, was effectively you set a target level of net debt and a target level of working capital. And then effectively there is a true up on completion. So if the level of net debt is higher or lower, there's an adjustment and the level of net debt or working capital is higher or lower, there's an adjustment there. Now, what we started to see increasingly during the period when we worked together, Hoos, was that shift towards lock boxes because we saw more financial buyers come in. They wanted to take the economic value from signing. And so a lock box effectively says between signing and closing, effectively the profit that's made in that period and the cash that's generated goes to the buyer. But in the instances that we worked on where there are carve-outs, that's quite complicated because the business doesn't yet exist. So you're creating the financial 
track record of that business at signing and you're recreating it at closing. And that gives a whole host of negotiation, dispute, arbitration areas. And so we spend a lot of time on that after signing, working out to make sure the clarity on that mechanism was understood and where the value leakage or accretion was. Let's take a short break and hear from our sponsor, Pilco. Pilco and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. We're back again in the M&A podcast with some highlights from the 10 episodes from the first season as a short guide to M&A. Now we are in the period between signing and completion, and one of the reasons this can be a very long period is that you have to clear your merger filing with the competition authorities. However, if you've not thought about that up front, you can get in real trouble. Here's Oliver Bretz, a specialist on merger filings, about the importance of what you write down from the very beginning of even considering a deal. Remember, everything you write down will be seen by the regulators. And I have to... Just stop there and say, yes, I agree with that. And you cannot believe the amount of documentation that sometimes, especially in the phase two review, you have to hand over to the regulators. And this is really something that comes as a shock to a lot of clients. When you say to them, look, you know, those emails that you wrote six months ago when you were talking about valuation, they will be handed over to the regulator. And the regulator will look at your valuation and they will look at how you arrived at the number that you arrived at. Or there might be discussions about the competition risk in a non-privileged way. Again, all that will go to the regulators. So it is really important, especially when you involve the bankers, to keep a very tight control of the privilege umbrella so that only people who really need to see the advice actually get to see the advice. Once that advice is replicated in various slides produced by the bankers and sent all over the place, you no longer have control of it. So you have lost control over the document in your deal. And I always say the most important thing is to retain control over the documents in your deal. And as you know, easier said than done. If you work in a complex organization, Chris, you've worked in complex organizations, getting people to resist the temptation to produce slide decks is just one of the hardest parts of my job. And it probably was of yours as well. And there's more that can go wrong between signing and completion. Just consider the risk of a catastrophic incident happening in the business that you just agreed to buy. That's not just fiction, as George Pilko from Pilko & Associates can describe from his own experience. Yeah, I'll share with you an example. Um, It was during a large energy acquisition where a catastrophic incident occurred between signing and closing, which shut down operations for an extended period. At that point, the buyer had multiple options, including walking away from the transaction by triggering the uh, the MAC provision. 
They could uh, wait for the seller to repair and restart the facility before agreeing to close the transaction. Or they could adjust the purchase price, close the transaction on schedule, then restart the facility under the buyer's leadership. This situation is another example of how a deal lead must seek inputs from various deal team members to evaluate options, understand the trade-offs, then make an intelligent decision on the optimal course of action. Unfortunately, major operational issues are not uncommon during energy and chemical transactions, given that facility and headquarters personnel can get distracted by the deal and lose focus on driving reliable and safe operations. These incidents are a reminder that sellers will offer transfer their high-potential leaders from a facility or business before beginning the sales process, as you mentioned, uh, Hoos, leaving the B team to run operations with very predictable results. Buyers should keep in mind that operational leaders will often need to be replaced by the buyer at or soon after closing in order to ensure facilities are run safely, reliably, and consistent with the buyer's culture. You might now be getting a clue to what I'm doing here by looking at the deal back to front. I'm trying to get you worried about what can go wrong. Things will go wrong. At least they will go different than expected because deals play out over a long time. So things happen externally and also the understanding of two parties that are negotiating continues to increase through the deal process. Knowing some of these things that can go wrong between signing and completion, we better make sure that we negotiate a solid sales and purchase agreement, an SPA, to protect ourselves. Here's Julianne Barron, one of the best lawyers I worked with in Shell, giving us a few clues. So now we consider contractual allocation of risk provisions, which effectively operate to adjust value post-closing. And these normally come in the form of warranties and indemnities. And it's very good to have these contractual protections. But I think the main point I would make here is that they're not silver bullets. It's not a panacea. And the reason for that is that contractual rights need to be enforced. And that can entail its own challenges, such as discharging a burden of proof. For example, the buyer will need to demonstrate it suffered damages if the seller's breached a warranty, or it may need to demonstrate all of the terms attached to an indemnity have been satisfied. And practically, the pursuit of claims can involve significant cost and management time, and it can drive management nuts. And recoverability itself may be an issue if the seller is no longer solvent. So you always have to keep in the back of your mind whether the contractual protections you're fighting so hard to get are going to be worth more than the paper they're written on when you're seeking to enforce them. And of course, I mean, there are mechanisms that you can employ to address all of these issues, guarantee provisions and the like, but you have to anticipate those and negotiate them up front. And um, governing law and dispute resolution clauses shouldn't be overlooked either as boilerplate because... If you're anticipating claims in the future, you need to know that you're comfortable with the law and forum dispute resolution because geopolitical shifts, for example, like we've seen post the Ukraine invasion, that can inhibit actually a fair award being delivered or the ability to enforce your judgment. When I'm working with the team puss, I always remind them also of the golden rule, the person who holds the goal makes the rules. So it's always better as a buyer to withhold some of the consideration pending resolution of a particular exposure 
than to have to claim that money back from a seller and, of course, vice versa for the other party. And the success, of course, of insisting on these provisions will depend on your negotiation leverage at the time and the competitive field. Okay, maybe an SBA cannot give you all the protection, but at least we can try to do a full due diligence and pick up on any snags before they appear. Here is Julianne again on what to look for. I think one of the most fundamental things to look for, Hus, is what's not there. And it's very important not to assume that the basics are all in place. So I've looked at targets which have been operating businesses for a number of years, and they've got really good relationships with their regulators, with the lessors, joint venture partners, and other stakeholders. But when you go in and interrogate the paperwork, We've found in certain instances there's no current operational license, uh, land title documents are missing, and leases have expired. Now, none of this may have been a problem for the current business because of long-standing relationships, but transactions have a habit of upsetting the apple cart. So stakeholders who may be nervous about a new player coming in can actually then get very nervous about the absence of what I mentioned before. And if those things weren't a problem for the existing business, they can suddenly become so on a change of control. Secondly, I think you have to interpret what is there. You have to look carefully at the quality of the information and ensure the material it's not skewed, it's not dealt with in isolation or misleading, particularly for the financials. So that's a trust but verify point. But I think the key of what you're looking for in due diligence comes back to the purpose of why you're undertaking the process in the first place. And it's to validate assumptions, as you've mentioned, Hus. It's also to inform your risk allocation or price adjustment uh, negotiation position. And it's to prepare also for implementation and integration activities. And it may be that you've looked during your due diligence and seen incidents with the existing business. That can then help inform you, okay, well, what's the culture? What's the risk management like? And perhaps you've also identified certain operational issues that you need to prioritize that you need to look at when you've acquired control as a buyer. But I think, George, that's very much front and center of your focus. Yes, and there's been a fundamental shift in buyer's focus over the last 10 years. If you go back a decade or so ago, 70% of the uh, focus was on environmental health and safety issues and 30% on operational related issues. But that's flipped. And currently we're seeing uh, 70% of the focus of buyers on operational related issues with 30% on uh, environmental health and safety. That was George Pilko highlighting an important trend in the industry. Still working backwards in the deal, when you're doing your due diligence, negotiations, which will result in the SPA you want to sign, will be well in the way. This is a huge subject in M&A and good negotiation skills, as well as, again, planning and preparation are essential. Let's hear a bit more from Julian Milchrist of Bank of America about negotiations. You have to get to know people, to what we were just talking about, I think, to be able to read their emotions. And um, I actually almost find it harder negotiating with someone I've never negotiated with before <laughs> than someone I've I've known for a long, long time because you kind of know them deeper. You know whether it, you've really hit a pressure point or whether it is just a negotiation tantrum or, or issue. Sometimes tantrums are bigger than they really are and you, you know they're being used tactically. 
look, in other cases, I think someone with a very calm demeanor can make a big impression with a, a sudden emotional reaction. And to be honest, I think I've got, I think those negotiators are more successful than those that kind of can go off the, the handle and have a big issue too often because it starts to just become noise. Whereas if you've built up a sort of credibility of constructiveness, you'd be making concessions to the earlier part, but then you really dig in and say, no, no, look, this is an issue, and you don't get the right answer and you walk out, suddenly that has, oh, okay, I've actually hit a pressure point. The other thing you talked about relationships, I think it's also important to be able to bridge back into negotiations after you've walked, right? Especially if you ultimately want to do the deal, it's just a matter of price or an issue. So I think both buyer and seller, particularly on the sell side, you need to make sure you've given the buyer that chance so you can afford to have a big break and a bust, whether it's driven by buyer or seller, but you've got a path back. And I think one thing I see some clients using well, and I often encourage it, is where you've got almost two layers of, of conversation going on, so long as they're aligned on the script to an earlier conversation. Because then one is kind of good cop, bad cop, one keeps it very smooth and is the way back in after a bust. And the day-to-day deal team can then take, frankly, more risks if they know there's another relationship and dynamic upstairs or alongside, which can always be used to pull things back or uh, take things forward. And look, maybe this is the advisor speaking, but I think that's sometimes where we can be helpful as well, because um, you know, it may be the first time when you were at Shell, you've been dealing with Company X, but probably we have several times before. I even get calls sometimes from the buyer when I'm acting for a seller saying, look, I'm hearing this. Do I really need to do this, Julian, in terms of moving? But if you've built that trust over years with the buyer, the fact you say, no, no, look, you may think you won the auction. Frankly, you have, but you still need to move up because it really is the whole value. It can be quite powerful, and that's also relationships, trust that you've built over years, not just in the deal, that get you to that uh, good outcome. So you see all your choices made early on come back when you are in the later deal stages. Therefore, a good setup is really important from the very first start of the deal. And nearing the end of this podcast, but right at the beginning of a new deal, let's assume we just decided to start a new project. Here are some tips on what you have to do when you start. Listen to Javed Ahmed, who spent many years at VTOL, heading their large acquisitions. First, I think a deal team should try and understand the strategic drivers for a transaction. So they should ask a few important questions and be comfortable with the answers. I mean, for example, why are you doing the transaction? What are you willing to pay? What risks are you willing to absorb? Next, I think it's pretty important to try and understand the counterparty's motivation. And then finally, get to know the people you're dealing with. Understanding the team you're going to sit across can be valuable. Again, you've heard about the importance of preparation. So let's draw this full circle because one step earlier and you're talking M&A strategy. And you've already heard from Jeff Rutnicki that the programmatic acquirers, or in my words, those who learn from doing deals, have the highest chance at creating value. As you've seen, looking back from the end to the beginning, a lot of things that play out later get determined by how you set them up in the beginning. And there's no way you can get a similar result if you address every phase of the deal only when you get there. It's all about planning ahead with the end in mind. And that's why doing deals well and creating value through doing deals is really difficult. It's difficult, but we have to try. And while I complained about the value destroyed in deals at the beginning of this podcast, there's no better way to end today than with what I would call an ode to M&A. 
the best description of why, despite all the challenges, we have to keep doing it. Let's hear from Kevin Kaiser, a joint professor at Wharton School of Business. Kevin, what interests you in M&A? That's a great question, actually. What I love about M&A, I can talk about for a half an hour, so I'll try to keep it short. The simple response is, in a complex world, which is changing as rapidly as ours is, all of the resources being deployed by governments, by companies, by individual entrepreneurs, are designed to serve human needs and interests, wants and desires, make the products and services that deliver happiness to humanity, and do it in a way that uses resources efficiently so you can make money, so you can do it again next year. The problem is, because the world is changing all of the time, human preferences, technologies, regulations, the issues that we all care about, the result is one resource allocation one year may not be the right resource allocation for the next year, with the result that companies that are successful in one year or in one decade may not be positioned to be successful in another year in another decade. So how do we facilitate the transfer of those resources and the way they're being used and the products and services they're delivering and the efficiency with which they do that, how do we transition those from one year to the next to keep up with the human preferences and the new technologies and the new interests that we all care about? And one way to do that would be just allow companies to go bankrupt. The ones who aren't transitioning successfully and making the stuff that people really value, they go bust, and then people get released back into society and new entrepreneurs create new businesses and they hire those people. But you can imagine that would be a pretty inefficient way to transition. So instead, we'd like to imagine the companies themselves can change, can adapt. But that's asking quite a bit because the corporate governance structures, the leadership structures, the organizational structures, and modern corporations don't lead to highly adaptive organizations. And that's where mergers and acquisitions come in. If one group of leaders in one organization with one corporate governance structure aren't sufficiently adaptive to the change in the environment, then there'll be an acquisition target. And another leadership team in a different company will see an opportunity to buy that company and push the transition to make the products and the services that people desire and use the resources more efficiently in the process and thereby get what we call synergies, which is the value creation available from an improvement in the resource allocation of the resources being deployed by this company. So for me, M&A is an essential ingredient in a complex changing world to keep up and make sure the resources that we're all trying to manage are being allocated efficiently to deliver the products and services that people value. And with that, let's continue to do deals and let's continue learning from these deals. I hope to have you listening again when a new series of the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast starts in the second quarter. Thank you for listening.